Turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, it's very interesting to me, um, especially in ministry, um, to engage in conversations with people and to discover the wide variety that exists as it regards to folks' assurance of their salvation. It runs the gamut. Uh, I've tried to represent it in a, in a crude graphic uh, of sort of this continuum. Uh, and there, on each end of this continuum are degrees uh, or areas of certainty. Nope, it's not up there yet. Um, certainty either positive or negative. There it is. It's not a very good graphic, but it'll do. Uh, certainty of, yes, absolutely, positively assured of my salvation. And then there are some folks who are just as certain in the other direction of, no way, not happening, not a chance. But the vast majority of folks, at least that I talk to, land somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in between these poles of great certainty in the realm of, well, I, I hope so. I, I, I think so. I'm not really sure. Even this week, in a conversation with someone who I would have bet money would have been quite certain of their assurance of salvation. But in this person's language, I picked up on this middle category of hope so, not really sure. picked this passage this morning, it contains a, a very simple yet a profound truth about the gospel, one which I keep coming back to over and over and over for a, a wide variety of applications, but one of the things that this passage can help do is to drive folks out of that middle category of uncertainty and one way or the other push them to more certainty either more certainty of a full assurance of salvation or more certainty that they have not, in fact, encountered the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes in the first section of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. It's a church that Paul had not visited himself. He didn't start it. It, it may have started as a result of his ministry in, in Ephesus, which was close by. But there was a fellow named Epaphras who was there. He was the minister, and he was the source of Paul's information about this church. And even just when we're still essentially in the greeting section, this initial Thanksgiving section of the letter, there is a gold mine of gospel truth for us. So let's turn and read these a few verses here, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1. This is the Word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, 
Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray before we dig in. Oh God, would you be our helper in this moment? We need help. Holy Spirit, would you come and guide our understanding? Would you illumine this word that you inspired? Would you use it to change us? Would you reveal to us the beautiful truths of the gospel? Would you be our help? We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so the first thing I want to do is is zoom in on what I think is this simple but profound gospel truth. And it's in verse 6. It actually picks up the the last two words from verse 5. So we've got the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So here's, here's this simple but profound truth. By its very nature, the gospel is always bearing fruit and increasing. It's it's what the gospel does by essence, by its nature, by definition. Where you find the gospel, you will find bearing fruit and increasing. And if you'll notice, this occurs on two levels. Globally and then also locally. Uh, So focusing there on on verse 6 again. Right? It's bearing fruit and increasing right there before that. In the whole world it's doing this. Right? In the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing. And so I want you to think a little bit about the context in which Paul is writing this letter. What's been going on in the time of the early church as, as recorded in Acts that we've been reading through together? Even as, that we read this morning. I can imagine that Paul's writing these words with his jaw hanging open and he's just in awe of what is taking place around him. Because you read through Acts and you say, alright, well the gospel was preached and multitudes are saved. And over here the gospel's preached and thousands are added to their number. Right? And so there's lots of these big dramatic events And even aside from the big dramatic events, there's just this ordinary daily growth that the church is experiencing that you see at the end of of Acts chapter 2, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And what happened? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so it's in this context that, that Paul is writing and he's saying in the whole world, this gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Thousands here, multitudes here. Now we've got to stop for just a second. Because I imagine that as, as I read that and as I say that, that some of you are discouraged. Quite frankly, I am too. I'm, I'm discouraged. Because we read of this, but then we look around at our present condition, and we say, man, that's not happening right now. That's not happening. I mean, there's hardly one or two 
But there aren't multitudes and there aren't thousands. And indeed, we, we are in a tremendous need of awakening and revival. We are. But, hear me on this, just because it's not happening in 29115 and 29118 doesn't mean it's not happening elsewhere around the world. Because it is. I mean, you can think back to a couple of months ago when Dr. Cassie was here and all that he shared with us and bore witness about the kingdom of Christ is advancing around the world. It cannot be stopped. And there are areas in the world right now, today, this morning, where it's still spreading like wildfire. Where there are thousands and multitudes coming to the Savior. So let me encourage you, even very early on in the sermon, two very practical steps, two points of application. If, in fact, you are discouraged, and I think there's some reason to be discouraged, what should we do? Well, number one, we should rejoice for where the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, because it is. Right? By its very nature, that's what the gospel does. It cannot be stopped. It is bearing fruit and increasing around the world. So rejoice, first of all. And second, pray. Let your discouragement fuel prayer. Not grumbling or complaining or, or whatever. Let it fuel prayer. Pray for revival. Pray for awakening. Start with yourself first. Pray for our church. Pray for our city. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for revival and awakening among your neighbors. Pray for revival and awakening for that guy in the next cubicle. And I don't mean a down-in-the-dumps Eeyore kind of prayer. I mean an expectant prayer. Pray like you believe that the gospel really does bear fruit and the gospel really is powerful. Pray like you believe what this verse says about the gospel, that it is bearing fruit, that it is increasing, that it can't be stopped. So that's globally. Now what about locally? Back to verse 6. The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Among y'all. Right, so even though we might not be seeing the results that we would like in terms of people coming to Christ, that's not the only function of the gospel. Because the gospel is also about conforming people to Christ. See, the gospel is not just the power for salvation, it's also the power for transformation. And there's no such thing as a fruitless gospel. There's no such thing as a life that has encountered the gospel that is not changed by the gospel. And surely this is what we're going to see in greater detail next week when Sean returns back to the pulpit and has us further in James chapter 2. Right? There is not a life that's been, that has encountered the gospel that is not also changed by that gospel. And it does so from the start. 
Notice that from verse 6. See, verse 6 is so chock full of gospel goodness. It's bearing fruit. It's increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood. See, there's no dichotomy here like there is in some of our testimonies and in some of our stories where we might relate how, well, we we prayed a prayer back then, so surely that's when I was saved. But my life didn't really change any until this later point. That may be how you and I sometimes talk of salvation. Scripture never really does that, though. Because Scripture talks about a powerful fruit-bearing, increasing gospel that brings about radical change in the life that's encountered it. That's the the thing there. Uh, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The day that that gospel really got a hold of you and started producing change, most likely that's the day of your salvation. Most likely that's the first time that you really encountered the gospel in truth. All right, so if the bearing of fruit, if the increasing of the gospel then is a mark of salvation, it's an evidence of salvation, then we ought to look a little bit more closely at that fruit. All right, so we zoomed in on verse 6 and on that truth that the gospel is always bearing fruit and increasing. Now let's zoom back out and let's pick things up, picking up into verse 4. And I want us to work our way slowly through verses 4 and 5. And I want you to look for causation. Look for what thing causes another thing that causes another thing. So this chain of events, basically. So verse, picking up into verse 4, we've got Paul is thankful since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have. All right? we're, we're thankful because we've heard about these things. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, of this hope, you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. All right, so let's work on that. So faith and love come because of hope, which came because of the gospel. Or if your brain works more like mine, which might be a scary thing, um, I need to put the causes before the effects. And so here's a, here's a masterful graphic, if I do say so myself. The gospel produces hope. Hope then produces faith and love. And so if the gospel is in fact always bearing fruit and increasing... Here we have three of the fruits to consider. There are many more, but here's three that will occupy us for this morning quite nicely. The first of which there is hope. The gospel produces hope. Now, by hope I don't mean this wimpy, anemic thing that we often speak of, of, 
Well, I hope I'm going to have enough money at the end of the month to pay the bills. Or, I hope we win the ball game. Or, I hope it does or does not rain, as the case may be. Because what we're saying with language like that is, I would like for this thing to be true, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. And in fact, the more I thought about this this week, it's this wimpy kind of hope that often shows up in our conversations and in our describing our assurance of salvation. And what lands us squarely in that middle ambiguous category of we don't really know one way or the other. It's simply a gee, I, I hope so. Right? And nothing could be further from real biblical hope. Right? See, if I ask you about how confident you are of your standing before the Father, if I ask you about how confident you are that you have peace with God, and you're not sure or certain, if there is not for you a confident expectation of the outcome, then in my mind, I'm going back to the gospel itself and beginning to question, has this person really encountered the gospel? Because the gospel produces hope. Because see, if you really have heard and understood the grace of our God in truth, then there's a hope laid up for you in heaven like a treasure on which you can and will bet the whole farm. Now, I think... I think the reason that so many folks land in this middle category of ambiguity and uncertainty is that they either don't understand the nature of the problem and or they don't understand the gospel's solution to that problem. Now, what do I mean? All right, why is there even a question about eternal destiny? Why would that even be the type of thing that might be in the backs of our minds and is in fact in the back of everybody's mind? Everybody wonders about this. And we do so because at our core, in the quietness of the moment, we know we're not right with God. Now we might not be able to articulate it in theological terms, of knowing that the problem is he's holy and we're not. But we know there's a problem. We're rebels against a sovereign king. Right? We know that there is not naturally peace with God. By nature, there's, there's enmity. There's not naturally a right standing before God by nature. And naturally, there's guilt and condemnation and the expectation of experiencing His wrath 
for our sin and rebellion. And so this is where the gospel comes in as the glorious and beautiful solution to that problem. Where we have a Savior who sacrificed himself that he might make peace where there was no peace. We have a Savior who absorbed in his own flesh the wrath of God that we deserved that we might stand before God as righteous and innocent. And so it's because of the certainty and the finality of His work. It is finished. That's the source of our hope. That's the source of our confident expectation. None of this nebulous business in the middle of, gee, I hope so, or I'm not sure. No. Christ did it. It's done. There's nothing left for us to do. If that's what our faith in, if that's what our faith is in, then there is hope laid up for us like a treasure in heaven. And so where there's a real understanding of the problem and there's a real understanding of the solution that the gospel brings, there is real certainty, there is real hope that you can have this morning. The gospel, as it is always, bearing fruit and increasing, it produces hope. The second thing that we see from this passage is faith. Now, it struck me a little odd this week in working through this passage, and maybe it did you even as we read through it, to think about hope producing faith. That just seemed a little odd to me to begin with. I would not have normally thought of faith being a byproduct of hope. But the more I thought about it, I can see that. I can see that. Let me... Let me try to help a little bit. Maybe this will make sense. If in the gospel we have hope, eternal hope, laid up for us in heaven like a treasure, our greatest and eternal need has been taken care of and satisfied. Right? We will never experience a greater need than our lack of a right standing before a holy and righteous God. And so if that thing has been taken care of, we will never experience another need in this life that will compare to that. That kind of increases my faith that all my other needs are going to be taken care of. I think that's what Paul is doing in Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Right? If God spared no expense at meeting our greatest need, how will he not also spare lesser expenses to meet some of these other less significant needs along the way? You see the force of that argument? If he was able to take care of this big, huge need, if he was willing to go to extravagant lengths and expense to do it. How can I not have an increased faith that he's going to take care of everything else as well? Much in the same way that hope has been abused and watered down in our language, faith has too. 
Because when we read faith here, we're not talking about this warm, fuzzy feeling. Oh, everybody's got to have faith, right? We're not even talking about how strongly you believe something. We're not even talking about how strongly you believe the gospel. Because the essence of faith is not found in the strength of your belief. It's found in the object of your belief. Okay? That's worth repeating. Right? The essence of faith is not in the strength of your belief. It's in the object of your belief. And so what is Paul commending here and thanking God for here that he sees, that he's heard of in the Colossians? It's their faith in Christ Jesus. This is a very specific thing with a very specific object. And so if your faith is in this most valuable object, if it is in Christ, if it is in His person and His work, it's in who He is and what He's done. That's our, that's our faith that is a fruit of the Gospel. That's our faith that shows the Gospel is increasing, not just globally, but also locally among us, Third fruit to consider from this passage is love. Alright, so just like their faith, Paul has heard about the Colossians' love, which is yet another watered-down word, but we don't have time to go there again. And it's not just love in general that Paul has heard about, it's specifically love that they have for all the saints, for all of those that the Gospel has placed them into relationship with. Because the gospel does that. The gospel makes us a part of a body. We are in relationship with one another. And so one of the greatest evidences that the gospel is at work among us is that we love each other. One of the biggest evidences that the gospel is at work among us is that we love each other. This was a big deal to Jesus. He called it out as the mark of discipleship. They're going to know you're my disciples because you love each other. It's a big deal for Paul. Right? We've seen here hope and faith and love, and that bothered some of you because it seems out of order. Because normally we're familiar with this trio from 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Faith and hope and love. And it actually shows up all over the place in the New Testament in all of the different orderings possible. But we know it from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these, right, is love. Even in this passage, that's hinted at the very end. Did you, did you pick up at, at the end of verse 8? He mentions love a second time. It's the only one that gets mentioned twice, Right? I know the love from Epaphras. I know the love that you have in the Spirit. All right, so let me help you with this or try to help you with this first visually and then verbally. So we cover all of our learning styles. If the gospel is bearing fruit 
in us, if it is changing us, if it is conforming us to Christ's image, it's drawing us closer to Christ. Okay? And so if he's doing that for me over here, and he's doing that for you over here, and we're both being drawn closer to Christ, what necessarily happens to the distance between me and you? You can answer out loud. It decreases. All right? If you and I are both being drawn to the same point, to the same person, being conformed to him, then necessarily the distance between me and you must decrease. And if that distance is not decreasing, or heaven forbid it's increasing, then one or both of us is, are not experiencing the fruit-bearing, increasing nature of the gospel. Now, if that graphic doesn't do anything for you, here it is verbally from uh, William Hendrickson. He was a a pastor and a scholar, and, and his commentary was helpful to me in this. Here's what he had to say. The same magnet, Christ Jesus, who attracts sinners to himself and changes them into saints, simultaneously draws them into closer fellowship with each other. It can't not happen. So where are we left? Um, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me try to clarify just a little bit of what I'm, I'm saying and what I'm not saying. When it comes to the gospel bearing fruit and us recognizing the fact that the presence of fruit among us is a mark of the gospel. It's a mark of our salvation. And and so I think what we need to do at the same time is we need to be tough on ourselves, but we also need to be realistic. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that we need to be ruthless in our self-evaluation. All right? Do I see this hope in my life? Do I see this increasing faith in my life? Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's be ruthless in our evaluation and gut level honest with that. But let's also be realistic about the time frame that we're evaluating. Let's not try to answer that question and evaluate whether or not we're increasing. And this goes for any of the fruits of the Spirit. Any of the fruits of the gospel, you see them in Galatians 5, right? Am I more loving? Am I more patient? Am I less angry? Am I more joyful, right? All of these evaluations that we're trying to make, let's not do that based on the last week version of myself, okay? That's just going to be frustrating, all right? Let's do that at least on the last year version of myself or maybe even the five-year-old version of of myself. Can I look back and see, yeah, I am a little bit more patient than I used to be. How about that? The gospel's bearing fruit and increasing. Or, yes, 
I, I do find it easier to love those that I'm in fellowship with a little bit more than I used to. How about that? The gospel's bearing fruit and increasing. All right? So be ruthless with the self-evaluation. Be realistic with the time period that you're looking at. Um, the second thing. If the gospel is always bearing fruit and increasing, then that means it never stops doing that, and we're never going to get finished this side of glory. All right? Expect to be in process. Don't expect to, to arrive, and don't be disappointed when you don't, because it's not going to happen. We will never finish growing and changing this side of glory. We constantly need the gospel's powerful, fruit-bearing, and increasing in our lives. And here's the third thing. And here's where I will kind of wrap up and transition to the table. We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder how God's going to do this. We've got this promise that the gospel's always bearing fruit and increasing, and we don't have to wonder how he's going to do that. He's explained very clearly through the Scriptures his ordinary means that he goes about doing that. He goes about producing fruit in our lives and increasing the gospel through his word. All right, that's what we've been doing. He does it through prayer. We've done that this morning. I hope that will continue throughout your day and throughout your week. And he does it through sacraments and he does it he uses all of those in the context of this community that we have together he does it through the church he does it through our fellowship and our communion together right so those are the means by which he's going to bear the fruit of the gospel in our lives those are the means by which he's going to increase the gospel for us to the praise of his glory that's how he's going to grow our love and our faith and our hope. Let's pray together before we go to the table. Oh, Father, thank you for your gospel in all of its beauty as it is the solution to the problem that we all universally have faced. That we all once stood before you guilty and condemned as rebels who experienced only enmity with you and could expect only wrath from you. But thanks be to you, O God, that you did not spare your own Son, but you gave Him up for us all. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would look at that costly sacrifice and provision that you made and that we would expect you to meet all the rest of our needs, even for the, the very bearing of fruit in our lives that is the evidence of the gospel itself. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this table this morning as a means of your grace, as a means of bearing the gospel's fruit in our lives. Would you grant to us by your Spirit the faith that is necessary to come to this table and to believe that Christ is somehow supernaturally present here to give us strength 
to give us faith, indeed to give us and to strengthen our hope. So we pray this morning that you would use this for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now as they were